good morning. It's good to see you all. Raise your hand if you were uh, at homecoming last night or if you are a tired parent after homecoming. Anybody in here? It was so great. My, my oldest got to go to her first homecoming last night, and it just made me so happy to see kids happy. And I kicked them all out of my house around midnight. I was like, I'm preaching in the morning. You all have to go. I love you. But um, it's just, it's so good to be with you all. And if you're joining us online, good morning. If you're listening to this on a podcast, um, hello to you too. I listen to podcasts either when I'm in the car for a drive or when I'm folding laundry because that's my least favorite domestic task is folding laundry. So it somehow makes folding laundry go a lot quicker when you listen to a podcast. So good morning to all of you. I'm so grateful to be here today. We are in a series on the chapter, the book, not the chapter, the whole book of John, which is going to take us a year. And if some of you heard that when Pastor Scott announced that and we're like, what? Um, I'm excited about it because when we did the book of Esther last Advent, last December, um, I actually came away from that series feeling like I really grasped and understood a whole book of the Bible. Granted, that's a much shorter book, but I'm just so excited to be diving deep into this biography of John about the life of Jesus. And so if you would mind, if you're able and willing to stand, we've been doing this um, and making this a custom during this series to stand while we read the word of God this morning. And this is going to be found in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and I'm going to be reading it in the New Living Translation. Jesus clears the temple. Here we go. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip. Jesus made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. I actually thought about doing that today, but I'm not going to. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. From the Old Testament, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Because remember that the temple had actually been destroyed and then they rebuild it and then it's destroyed and they rebuild it. And you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, you may be seated. So today we get to talk about anger. And I have a lovely little photo for you because this is my, uh, one of my favorite movies. You can just leave it up there, Dan, for a while. All right. Um, we get to talk about anger. I've actually not ever preached on anger before, and I found myself very excited about it. But then it's very humbling when you're writing a sermon on anger and find yourself highly annoyed at humanity. So... I am excited today to talk about this. Jesus turning over the tables actually happens in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we know it's a very significant thing. Whenever you see all of the Gospels say the same thing, we really need to pay attention to it. 
What's interesting is that here in John's gospel, we see this happening early on in Jesus' ministry. If you remember last week, Pastor Scott talked about Jesus turning water into wine. This is his very first public miracle that is documented. This is probably when he's around age 29 or 30. And then right after this, we see him going into Jerusalem for Passover, which always happens in the spring, um, once a year where they remember their exodus from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and when the Lord passed over, literally passed over their doorways because they had put the blood of the lamb on there, and he, and he spared them, and then they got to go through, the, you know, the sea and everything, and so they still would remember this every year that God is their provider, and he's not going to abandon them, and so what we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are actually this, uh, this same story, but happening three years later on Jesus's last week of life, actually during the Passion Week, was what we call it now, right after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem when they say, Hosanna, and the very next day he's in the temple and he sees the same thing happening. So most biblical scholars, and honestly most of us, probably if we read this, it, you can determine that this happened two times. Whether it happened one time or two times, I mean, humanity repeats the same stuff. So it's very likely it happened three years later again. And they thought, maybe we can you know, do this again and Jesus won't notice. Regardless, it's important and it's significant because this is a very large scene. I don't think in Sunday school we picture Jesus with fiery eyes and making a whip. And, to, you know, it doesn't say he hit anybody. He probably was using it for all the animals that were in there. But this is not a regular Sunday school scene. Anger is an important emotion. It's actually the second stage of grief. And if you have studied the five stages of grief, I remember them because it spells dabda, and that always reminded me of, I don't know, like, if you, this is going to date me, but like Fred Flintstone saying yabba dabba, but it's like dabda. So it's denial, anger, bargaining when you think, like, if I hadn't taken that one road, we wouldn't have gotten in this wreck. And you go back in your mind, you try to undo it. Depression, and then acceptance. And I would say, if, as a side note, if you are experiencing grief, of any kind, those rarely happen just very linearly and in chronological order. They often happen all at the same time where you go back to one when you think you've mastered the anger and you go back and you find yourself upset. But anger is very important emotion and it's often, if you've done any of the hard and good work of counseling, you know that it's often called a secondary emotion. I remember one of the first times I went to counseling and um, I was angry about something and, and the counselor said, why do you think you're so angry? I'm like, is this a trick question? I'm paying you money to help me. But they really wanted me to do the work of figuring out what is the source of your anger. So when we say it's a secondary emotion, that usually means that something has preceded it, like loss, desperation, vulnerability, disrespect, neglect, hurt. And that leads us to become angry. I didn't really think I was an angry person until I had children. And it really only takes, honestly, whether you're a parent or not, it, any kind of human relationship will humble you. And you realize, I, I think I have some anger issues. Whether you are like the explosive anger kind or whether you're like the internal burning, seething kind, it's still anger. And I honestly was so naive to think that I really just wasn't a super angry person until I had children. And when we had two children, I realized how much more angry I could be. And I have this very 
like distinct memory of having a two-year-old and a brand new baby. And so, of course, the two-year-old has massive life chains. All of a sudden, I'm like, we got to potty train you. You got to get out of your crib. We need that. So you got to go to a big kid bed. And, you know, you can't get out of it, though. You got to stay in it. <laughs> and so we had all of these, these struggles. And, you know, I'm starting to kind of ignore the two-year-old because I got to take care of the, the newborn. And so what happened was we were trying to sleep train our two-year-old to stay in this this new twin bed, and she would not stay in it. I mean, I tried all of the things you can think of. I even got one of those, this sounds terrible, and this is, I don't know if I should say this microphone, we got one of those white things that goes on the doorknob so you, they can't get out. It's like they're a prisoner in their own room. I don't even know if that's allowed anymore, but, but we did that because I didn't want her wandering the house, you know, falling down the stairs, and, and so she would, would fall asleep, I wish I had a picture of this, with her hands underneath the door, like she was getting as close to the door as possible. She didn't sleep in this beautiful Costco bed that we had bought her with a brand new mattress. She would sleep on the floor and she would put her hands underneath the door slat, which is very sad and pathetic. I mean, I, and I thought this would last maybe a few nights. I'm like, we're just gonna do boot camp. It's gonna be fine. Nope, this went on for a month. And she actually was like breathing in carpet, fi carpet fiber. She got sick. She was not sleeping in her bed at all. So she'd wake up grumpy. And this whole time I've got a newborn baby. Long story short, I was angry. I was so angry. I would yell. I'd fly off the handle. I, of course, it was like the most humbling time of parenting. And I kept praying that she wouldn't remember <laughs> those years. And then one day I felt like the Lord said to me, Olivia, just calm down and just take a breath and get down on her level. Cause it's important when you are a big person and there's a little person to get down on their level. And I said to her, sweetie, with very calm voice, holding it all in. Can you tell mommy why you won't sleep in your bed? And she said, in a very quiet voice, there's a donkey outside my window. <laughs> I am not making this up. And I was trying everything in me not to laugh. And I'm like, what, for a month there's been a donkey outside your window? And she was certain, certain. I guess we had read some nativity Christmas story and I went back, we still have this book actually, and there is a donkey in the shadows. Because <laughs> she said it was like very dark and in the corner, you know. And so she, her bed was by the window, so she had moved as far, this was very logical, as far away from the window where this imaginary donkey was as possible. And so she was just desperate to get out of this room. And to this day we laugh about, there's a donkey in my room. So... <laughs> I, in that moment, I thought, Lord, I've gone about this the entirely wrong way. And um, we, we solved the donkey, the imaginary donkey problem. The really funny thing is that, like, five years later, we moved out to the country, and our neighbors have a donkey, and it is outside her window. So what exactly is Jesus angry about? Because we have to get to the root. My root was, honestly, I can't control another human being. And I, it was a lot of pride. It was a lot of resentment. It was a lot of selfishness because now I don't get to go to bed. You're messing up my life. It was just, you have to get to the root. So what is exactly is Jesus angry about? This is important to know in John chapter 2. This is what he's mad about. Those that are turning what he made right, his father's house, into something wrong, a place of abuse and exploitation. So he's mad about something he designed and created to be this beautiful thing, this place where people can come together like this and gather and worship, and they've turned it into the opposite. And he's mad because people are keeping other people from having access to him. 
What does that mean? If Jesus didn't kick these people out, if he didn't turn over the tables and drive out the animals, these other people would have continued to take disadvantage or advantage of the poor, discouraging people from coming to worship. This is hard to understand in our cultural context because we don't have to bring goats and sheep to worship. But, you know, if you're driving in the middle of the desert, like somewhere in the middle of California, or if you've driven in Montana, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you need gas really badly, and you go, you find the one gas station that's like for hundreds of miles around, and it's like five or six dollars a gallon, because they know they can do that, right? They know you're desperate for gas, and you can't continue on if you don't have it. And so they jack up the prices. This very thing was happening in the temple during this very significant Passover celebration. And so because people would walk and come from far, far away, they didn't want to bring their best goat or lamb with them, so they would buy it when they got there. And so they're coming to the temple, and also this used to happen on the outside of the temple. But we read in this, this story that they've, these, these merchants and the people selling it, which are religious leaders, have moved this into the inner courts where this just should be sacred. And here it's turned into a marketplace where they are raising the prices so that these poor families are not able to worship. Some of them probably couldn't even get in. And this ticked Jesus off. This is where we see Jesus at his angriest. He makes a whip and drives them out because they're making it really hard for people to get to Jesus just to make a few bucks. What's interesting is that our denomination, if you don't know, we have a denomination, we're a part of a large global denomination called the Free Methodist Church. And the one thing, there's many things, but one of my favorite things about the Free Methodist denomination is that the word free actually comes from back in the day when, when they would charge people, this is real, the, like you all in these front row seats would be, you would have to pay to get closer to the pulpit. So you can imagine in, a, in societies of old, which were very much like a pecking order and hierarchy based on class and race and all of these things that shouldn't have been, the people in the back row, you know, they were farther away and they didn't have the money to get the primo VIP seats. And so the, the founding fathers of, of Methodism, free Methodism, were like, this is wrong. Like, they, they were abolishing slavery, and they were big on, we don't, you don't have to pay for the seats. If you've ever seen the movie with Will Smith, The Pursuit of Happiness, which I love, there's a scene where he's completely homeless with his son. And he, one of the only places he can get into, he can't even get into, like, the mission to sleep overnight because it's packed. And he finally, the only place he can go is church. And he goes in there and he holds his son and weeps and worships. And it's one of my favorite scenes in like cinematography because I'm like, this, this should be where everyone can go. Everyone should have the same access to God. We shouldn't be making it hard. We also see that Jesus got angry the same subject matter when his disciples, it says in um, Mark 10, when Jesus saw that his disciples were trying to keep the children from coming to him, he was angry with them. And he said, let the little children come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. And so it tells us he's angry whenever people, and it's usually the Christians, are trying to stop other people from coming to him. He's really mad about it. It's a big deal. And I would agree with him that the children are like the kingdom of God. On the first day of school, after they haven't got to be in school in like a year and a half, um, my, my sixth grader said that someone came up to her and said, do you want to be friends? She was like, sure, 
okay, we're friends. We can take some notes from that, right? And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. Don't stop them. And if you are a child, you need to know that this is in scripture. Jesus gets mad when adults try to stop you from coming to God. So take note of that. You are important. You are significant. And you have just as much access to the Lord. So Jesus is primary emotion is love. When these religious leaders are saying, give us a sign, give us some kind of miracle to prove that you have the authority to do this, and he talks about rebuilding the temple in three days, and they're like, what are you talking about? This took years to build. He's talking about his body, because we know as soon as he was on the cross, and as soon as he gasped his last breath and said, into your hands I commit my spirit, it says the very moment that happened, do you know what happened in the temple, in this same temple? The curtain that it was like barring, you know, that the very like innermost part of the temple, the most sacred part, or the Holy of Holies, is, it says was torn from top to bottom. And that's significant. Humans didn't get in there with some really great fabric scissors and cut it. It is torn from heaven, and God is saying there is nothing that is going to separate us anymore because Jesus has made a way, and he is the bridge so Jesus' primary emotion is love. You know how I was talking about anger as a secondary emotion usually? It's because it comes from his primary emotion, which is love for his kids. This is anger infused with love, and it's a righteous, righteous anger. I want to show you a quote from someone named John Bloom. I love this definition of righteous anger. And he says, righteous anger is being angry at what makes God angry. And righteous anger is the right word order because God is not fundamentally angry. He's fundamentally righteous. God's anger is a byproduct of his righteousness. So what makes God angry is the perversion of his goodness, the turning wrong of what he made right. God calls this perversion evil. Evil twists and disfigures God's glory, vandalizing what is most valuable and profaning what is most holy. Evil poisons and distorts reality, resulting in the destruction of joy for every creature that chooses the perversion over God's good. So our anger is righteous when we are angered over evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. And this is the hard part. Those who walk closest with Jesus are also marked by this remarkable patience with sinners. They too are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. They do get angry, but like Jesus, their anger is laced with grief. Occasionally they flip tables in the temple, but they also weep over Jerusalem. So something I think that's really important when we study scripture, and honestly, this could apply to any subject, whether it's anger or fill in the blank, is to not read the Bible like it's a single. What I mean by that is we live in a single, a music single world. It used to be back in the day, we would get cassettes. If you don't know what a cassette is, you can Google it. Before that, there were eight tracks and there were a beautiful thing called a record. But you would have an album and it would have like, it was just like a masterpiece. It would have beautiful art. I used to have, in my day it was CDs and I would open that up and I would memorize the lyrics. But the artist created an entire album, not just a single, because they want to tell a whole story, not just one chapter. So whenever you're studying scripture, it's really important to see from cover to cover, what does God say about, fill in the blank, so what I've done today, and I'm not going to read them all because there's literally hundreds and you would probably fall asleep on me, but there are hundreds of scriptures about God's love for us, God's mercy for us, God's anger and wrath, and how this all works together 
um, how we are supposed to display anger, how he displays anger with us. So I would like, if you are an audio learner, like if you listen just by hearing, just close your eyes when I read this. If you're a visual learner, it's going to be on the screen. And I, um, you can see these are all the verses that I'm going to read. I'm not going to say all the, um, the passages because that's kind of boring. But I'm going to just read them all together. This is from different authors. This is from Old Testament and New Testament. And this gives us more of a picture for listening to God's soundtrack um, as an album and not just a single. All right? Here we go. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. In great anger and fury, the Lord uprooted his people from their land and banished them to another land. Yet, he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times, many times, he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother or sister without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. I fear the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord, listen to me. The Lord is slow slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This part's important. Don't befriend angry people. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And finally, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Amen. So this is, this is the whole album. If we, I mean, and we could add hundreds more songs in there because there's so much more in the Bible about it. What does your ear pick up on that? There's this back and forth, this constant copy and paste from Adam and Eve until right now in 2021 of us wanting to do our own thing and then God being so slow to anger. Like his fuse is long. 
His fuse is very long. I used to joke when I was in like the little years with kids, I would start out every morning with the fuse and then by like five o'clock, it was like this big. And God's fuse is very, very long. He, we have a very patient, patient God. Yet he knows that we, we, can't, just, we can't just do whatever we want. That's not gonna lead to life. When, uh, when one of my kids first started middle school, uh, I was kind of overwhelmed because I thought, I'm dropping them off. There's like 600 or 700 kids, and they come from a really small public school of like 180. And so I was checking in with my daughter. How, how are things going? Like, I usually do this in the car because if you, if you want to have great conversations with your kids, if you're both facing forward and on like a long road trip, it's a great time to do this. It's not just like awkward staring one-on-one. And, and so she said to me this story that she was in one of her classes, and this boy was grabbing a stapler, undoing it, opening it up, and just going, I can't make the gun noise like so many other kids can, but like, you know, just shooting staples all over the place. And so I was like, what did you do? I'm thinking if I were 12 and in sixth grade at a big school, I'd probably just duck and cover. And, you know, I was pretty shy at that age. Nope. She said, I walked right up to him. I calmly grabbed the stapler and took it away. And then in her kind of reflecting, she said, you know, mom, he's a child of God, but he can do better. (laughs) And and to this day, this is a line in our home. Like when someone's kind of having a day, we're like, you're a child of God, but you can do better. And it's true. And I thought, I don't think I would have had that composure when I was 12. But I sometimes think the Lord looks at us like that. Like, you are my kids. I love you a thousand percent. There's nothing you can do that would ever separate us, but you can do a little better. And he is so slow to this anger. Like he's given us lots of chances in Hebrew, slow to anger, which that phrase, I, by the way, when you were hearing me say that, these are all different passages. There's lots of slow to anger passages because he's had a lot of time to, to be slow to anger with us. In Hebrew, this is Eric Apayim. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it literally means long of nostrils. And so you know when you are just like unleashing, like you, there's a dragon inside of you and it's like breathing fire to people, you know, nostrils flare. And when you are trying to do, I'm going to count to 10 seconds. I'm going to do it. I'm going to just not say all the things that are going through my head right now. I'm just, I'm going to breathe in. These are long nostrils. If you can picture God with like the world's longest nostrils, this is what this means. Slow to anger. And it's interesting because when God breathed life into us, he breathed life into our nostrils, it says. If you go back to Genesis. And John Mark Comer has written a book called God Has a Name. Some of you have, who's read this in here, anybody? It's good stuff. And there's actually a whole um, chapter about God's wrath and God's anger. And he says in here, God's nostrils are long. So we have an extremely long-suffering, patient God that loves us. And I want to read to you a quote from this book. It'll be up behind me. John Mark Comer says, The scriptures writer's main problem with Yahweh's anger, so when we're reading in the Bible, is that God doesn't get angry more often. That's what they're mad about. But we live in a radically different culture. For the most part, we have the exact opposite problem with Yahweh's anger. We were born in the middle of a tectonic shift in how Westerners think about God. A lot of people have abandoned the God is angry narrative and simply replaced it with the exact opposite. God is never angry at all. As followers of Jesus, when we read these stories about Yahweh's anger or wrath or judgment, we feel like we need to apologize to our friends or explain it away or hide this socially unacceptable part of God away in the back room. 
as if Yahweh needs a little PR help to survive the modern world. Amen. The imagery of an angry God is passe. We've moved on, evolved to a more progressive world. It's time that we update Yahweh for the 21st century. And with this move to recast God comes an even more disconcerting move to redefine love. Love, at least the kind of love that Jesus talked about, often leads to anger. We get angry about things we care deeply about, things we're passionate about. This is the kind of anger we see in Yahweh, anger that is patient, just, and unselfish, that comes out of a place of love, anger that comes from a father who cares about his kids. In spite of all the current rebranding of God to fit the Western world, if we're going to take the scripture seriously, then we have to take this part of God seriously. It's good stuff. When I was a teacher back in the day and I was teaching high school, the very first day of school, um, I would do this little, I don't know, visual with the kids because I was trying to explain to them what kind of teacher my hope was to be that year. So I would get out a bowl kind of like this and some soap, just a bar of good old-fashioned like soap and some water. And I would tell them there's three, basically three different kinds of teachers. There's the negligent kind that's like, whatever you want to do, and you know, you will go in their class, and it's just like chaos, and the kids, and sometimes the kids will say, I like that teacher, it's because they let them do whatever they want to do, right, and so I would show them with the soap, like, if you don't hold the soap tight enough, if you hold it loosely, like if you're in the shower, and you don't hold it tight enough, what does it happen? It, it falls out, right, and then there's the authoritarian, which is like a dictator kind of teacher, and you walk into that classroom and you might see everyone just very, very quiet, but like the kids probably don't have a lot of fun because they're strict and cold. And so that's when you're holding the soap too tight and what happens when you hold soap, a wet bar of soap too tight? It pops out and, right, and it, it falls down. And then there's an authoritative type of teaching and a style of teaching where you're strict but you're warm and you don't hold it too tight and you don't hold it too loose and it stays right there and it's protected. And that was, I would tell them, this is my goal. I'm not going to always get it right. I'm probably going to mess it up, probably on day two. But this is my goal, to be an authoritative kind of teacher that cares about you, um, and it doesn't hold too tight or too loosely. And so when we see what John Mark Homer is writing about this, this is the, this pendulum shift we've seen throughout history. And right now, we are in the kind where we're like, we want, I think our culture wants the parent that's like, you can watch whatever movie you want to watch. You don't have a curfew. I don't care what you're doing in the basement at one in the morning, you know. I remember having friends like that, and I sometimes wanted their parents. And oftentimes, as a teacher and as a pastor now, those are the kids that I see who are like, I wish my parent cared more. I wish they even noticed that I didn't come home at one in the morning. We see in Ephesians 4.26 that it says, In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And that writing from Paul is actually a direct quote from David pouring out his heart in Psalm 4 when he said, be angry and do not sin. I read this and I want to say to David and to Paul, like, that sounds like an oxymoron to me. How can I be angry and not sin? And it says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds, going back to that not letting the sun go down while you're still angry. I'm like, well, I'm just going to stay up all night then because I'm kind of angry. It says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. I guarantee if people thought about it overnight and remained silent before they commented on anything online, would have a lot less hatred going on in the world. I actually have a friend who is also a pastor, and she 
when she's gonna write something on social media, she actually will write it out, and then she will do this. She will think about it overnight, like this is if it's something really significant. And then she, in the morning, she'll see how she feels about it, and she often will change it. That's spiritual maturity right there. Because human anger, we know from James, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James, by the way, was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning they both had the same mom, right? And obviously, Joseph was James's dad, and then God was Jesus's. But I'm sure as the half-brother of Jesus, I would have been ticked off a lot. Can you imagine? And he is telling us human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So here's my question for myself today and for all of us. How do we do this? How do we be angry and not sin? Because that sounds very complicated to me. And most of the time, I just feel like Will Ferrell right here in this next slide. That's how I feel about <laughs> things. He's, I'm like a South Pole elf sometimes. And so we're going to look at righteous anger versus vengeful anger as we close up today. So here's, if you're wondering, if you're laying in bed at night, like, like it says in the scripture and thinking about this and staring at the ceiling and trying to sift through this, righteous anger comes from the Holy Spirit. And we know that it's going to eventually produce fruit and it's going to bring about restoration. That's the goal of it, right? When we see when all those verses I read about God's anger for us, his goal isn't to destroy us. His goal is to restore and to redeem. Whereas vengeful anger, big surprise, comes from our flesh, and it produces cynicism. It seeks destruction. Something I've realized in the past year and a half is that I have been more angry than I have been since, honestly, like the donkey years. <laughs> and I don't know if you can relate to this. And I was talking with a friend, and they said, you know, I've become so cynical. And what's sad is that I think just because of COVID and all of the things that we've endured as a culture, as communities globally for the last year and a half, it's produced a lot of cynicism. And sadly, if I'm being real with you, the, the big four areas that we look to in life for security and for like, you should know what you're doing, which would be healthcare, education, the church, government, these four like pillars, I don't know, where's your trust level with all of those? Do you have cynicism? I know I do, a lot. And so it's, it starts to bubble up and it just, you know, feeds off of, it feeds off of itself. <clears throat> so I'd like to invite the worship team up as I do a little, we are not having a cooking show, I really wish we were today, but I've always thought that'd be fun because they have everything perfectly ready for them. And it's like scraped off, it's like, you know, in their, their little fake kitchen. Um, <laughs> so... This is what, this has been how I've been trying to process this. Um, and I actually looked back on a text I sent to some of my close friends when I was really like, I would say struggling with like the heart of anger during this past year and a half. And for me, like if I'm being real with you, when I see kids being hurt because of adults dysfunction and because adults can't agree and because they're fighting and like just everyone's arguing in our culture and then the kids get forgotten about and the kids get like the lame end of everything, and it causes them harm, that is like my, uh, my tender spot. So I start to fight, and I start to get angry. And some of that is righteous anger, for sure, because we know God cares about kids. And some of that, honestly, is a lot of flesh, because I'm like, what are you doing? And I just get so angry. Okay, so here's our recipe. Here is our human anger. These are a lot of <laughs> things here. I'm 
Here's me being really ticked off at adults and what they've done to kids in the last year and a half. I'm gonna put a lot of them in. All right, then you've got little things like, this is someone who keeps putting the potato masher in the kitchen drawer. Why do people do that? You cannot open it. And then I'm in there with like my hand and scraping my hand because I can't get it out. Someone keeps putting it in there. I don't know if it's a guest. If you come over, please don't do that. All right. And then you've got other things like we're just tired of like a pandemic, right? I'm just angry about it. I don't know. What are you angry about? We put all these things in here. Um, and then there's other little things. There's probably some tiny, there's like, I'm going to just dump it in because there's some tiny little grit at the bottom. That's like people that drive um, in the left lane extremely slow under the speed limit and make everyone else go around them because the world revolves around them. That's the little tiny stuff. Okay. Then we have God's righteous anger, right? Which I'm going to demonstrate with flour. And this is like the pure stuff. This is the good stuff. I'm going to put a lot of it in because he's got a lot. He's slow to anger, <laughs> right? And we're gonna mix it all together, right? And so then we stir it up. This is how I feel like I've been. I actually told Pastor Scott when I was preparing for this, I was like, I don't know if I've ever honestly felt like pure, unadulterated, just righteous anger. It's so hard. Like it says in James, like human anger is not righteous. So how do we do this? Because this is very hard. This is what I feel like my anger looks like especially right now at this point in 2021. It's just a mixture of stuff. And even though there's a lot of good stuff, there's a lot of crummy flesh in here too. So this is the only thing I know. <laughs> um, we have a pumpkin bread recipe that I think is the best in the world. It also has like four cups of sugar in it, so I'm sure it's terrible for us. But I make it every October and November. We watch Anne of Green Gables. It's awesome. And I never want to do this part because it, the recipe calls for sifting. And I'm like, why do I have to sift the flour? Well, I mean, it's already, isn't it already sifted? I don't know. It looks like it. And so I often will skip this. I don't also, this is usually buried in that same dang drawer as the potato masher. And I don't want to find it. I'd have to, it's buried in there. And this is an important step. If we do not sift through our vengeful, sinful, fleshly anger with the pure, holy, righteous, restorative anger of God, it's always going to be a mess. And so we have to have a sifter. And this is the Holy Spirit. It says in scripture, God gave us the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, to be the go-between, right? Until he comes back, this is what we have. Till we are face to face and, and with him in heaven, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And so we have to sift. And sifting is messy. And it takes time. This is not probably going to happen overnight. I probably can sift quickly through the people that drive in the left lane. And if you are one of those, God bless you. I can sift through that. But the big stuff, like the stuff when people are making decisions and hurting kids and I'm like calling offices and I'm just ticked off, that's going to take some time. And what I found, I went back to what, oh gosh, see it's messy. What John Ratcliffe said, if you weren't here like a month ago and we had all the chairs up here, he said, we have to start by honoring the Imago Dei in one another, which is on our board over there, by the way. It's one of our core values here. And he's like, if we just walk into a situation with anger and we start by tribalizing or being like, are you mask or no mask? Where are you politically? Are you Democrat or Republican? And we start with tribalization and division, it's probably not going to go well. And so honestly, I was at a school recently where I know one of the schools in our town is dealing with a lot of stuff. 
And as I touched the door handle, I felt like the Lord said, just pray and just remember that as you walk in, as you literally open this door, every single person you see, remember to honor the Imago Day in them. They are a child I made, Olivia. And so we have to sift, and it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of following Jesus. And sometimes, if you could see this, there is a little bit of, of uh, dust in there from the little anger. <laughs> so it's, it's going to get mixed in. None of us are going to be Jesus. But for the most part, the rocks, you know, are going to stay. And it's going to take a lot of work, but it, I think it's possible. And I think we have to do it together. Otherwise, as Jack says in Lost, if we can't learn to live together, we're going to die alone. And uh, if you haven't seen Lost, I'm sorry. But it's true. It's very true. So we're going to sing Jesus at the Center um, to close us up today. And would you stand as we do that, as we worship the Lord? Thank you, Olivia. Very appropriate song today. If we see Jesus between us and all that we are struggling with, all we are angry about, it makes a difference because he's forgiven us so much and that's something that we have to remember to bring into every conversation and interaction with each other Jesus at the center of it all Jesus at the center of it all from beginning to Well, Pastor Olivia, thank you for a fresh perspective on a topic that we don't want to talk about too often. I mean, I, to be honest, I think probably most of us came in here a little angrier than we thought we should. <laughs> or maybe whether it's kids or, or just life or, or whatever, we, it's an emotion that, that we don't always deal with. But man, I, I thought what you talked about, like taking the time to actually sift through which it's going to be work, right? We're going to have to lean into that. We're going to have to actually take time and, and listen to the Holy Spirit and maybe talk with a, a spouse or, or a friend or, or a brother or a sister or whatever and, and sift through some of this stuff so that we can get down to what is, what is good.
get down to what is true, to get down to what the Lord would have us to do with these emotions that we're feeling. So thank you for that. And thank you for, for being present today. Thank you for, for leaning into an opportunity to gather together, to center ourselves on Jesus as we enter into another week where we will face obstacles, we'll face frustrations, but at Jesus at the center, it's, it's the key. So as you leave this place, be reminded that we aren't uh, leaving the presence of God, but we have a unique and blessed opportunity to take the presence of God with us wherever we go. God bless you as you do, and we hope to see you again next Sunday. Have a great week.